Every question would be like, Jeremy, what's it like to be Asian in the NBA? What's it like to be different? When every time you walk in a room is either thought, whispered, or mentioned. My parents grew up Asian immigrants. They came here with nothing. Did you get racial slurs thrown at you? Some of the stuff they say, like... You need a story, Jay. You need a story. I I, I got you. (laughs) Stories derived from those stereotypes and the ideals they box you in. The expectations they lock you in. Everybody who criticized me was like, he's too weak and he's not fast Even enough. if I make a layup, they'd be like, oh my goodness, great shot, Jeremy. I'm like, yo, like, I know how to play. <laughs> they play their cards. But why is it that the things that come natural to you always catches them off guard? Everyone would just refer to me like, Linsanity, Linsanity. I'm like, dude, just stop calling me that name, man. Here we go, we got Jeremy Lin. They drew a line in the sand. Now here you stand outside that line with goals in mind. Dreams and destinies you will put here to find, manifest. They say you the worst when you know you're the best. So you invest, put in that work, even when it hurts. Their can'ts and their doubts turn into our will and I must. You put trust in your faith and your gut. The instincts you naturally feel against all lies. You tighten up even the playing field. Brick by brick you build like a city. There's something in me, in you, that just won't let you stop. You know what's going in, even though they say... You are an outside shot. Outside shot. We played against each other for so many years, and it's been unbelievable. But to be on the same team now, both in Brooklyn, and to have somewhat of the same story of being an underdog, fighting, scratching for everything that we have earned, I look at it and I say, this is pretty cool to be able to interview someone like this and hear their story. So my first question, and this is the question I ask all the time, have you ever been to New Jersey? (laughs) Um, I think this might be my second time to New Jersey. (laughs) (laughs) You you don't don't usually find too many things to do out here, but uh, apparently it's pretty nice. Um, It definitely reminds me more of back home, getting out of Brooklyn or getting out of Manhattan. So Northern California, you grew up there. Your parents were born in... Taiwan. Yeah, born and raised. So when and why did they come to the U.S.? My dad came after he got his undergrad degree for education. And then my mom came after her high school graduation. Same thing for education. And and her mom was um, doing some doctor stuff out here. So they moved. They ended up meeting and then they both went to Purdue, one for undergrad and one for grad school. They got married and I guess the rest is history. <laughs> Three boys later, right? <laughs> so I read that your dad introduced you and your brother to basketball. <laughs> did he play basketball? And where do you get your height from? <laughs> I don't even know because both my parents are 5'6 and I'm 6'3. They like both barely go up to my shoulder. My dad loves to play, but I would say play is more like a loose word because if you saw him play, you'd be like, <laughs> I don't know if that's playing. But, um, no, he loves the game, and uh, you know he's gone through some injuries, so he can't really run. But he just loves to play, and so he he'll shoot around. He'll play open gym and everything. So even growing up, we would play every single day. And you know his thing is a hook shot because he <laughs> old school. Yeah, so he fell in love with the game when he moved here because he saw Kareem Abdul-Jabbar on TV, and he was like, "Oh, what is this?" So he fell in love with the game, and basically he never learned how to shoot. He only learned how to shoot the hook shot. So his normal shot is like a lot less accurate. Like his hook shot is his go-to. So he'll he'll turn down a wide open layup 
and turn around and and do a pirouette and shoot a shoot a hook shot because he's more comfortable. <laughs> and he can't he can't get blocked. Probably, I mean, yeah. it's, you know, it's a lot easier to kind of get it over six three sun. Actually, than, actually, how tall are you? I'm five five, proud. Oh, so, <laughs> but I, I'm taking you to the rim. I don't care. <laughs> I don't need to hook it on you. And his isn't even like a. Like a baby hook, it's a full sky hook, and so yeah, it is pretty hard to guard. But um, he's not that fast, so we'll still get it. We'll still get it. You know, me and my brother. Guys we'll in the see. five, well, his dad, you in the five five and under league. His dad is in the is, five six and <laughs> upper league. Nobody really tries the hook shot as the way Kareem does. You know, guys yeah. throw it in, but it seems like it would be something that would be a weapon. No, it's not sexy. That's why. Yeah, you know, guys are like oh, I want to dunk. You know, even the um. The Barry, the underhand yeah, foul yeah, shot, yeah, exactly. exactly. He um he shoots the ball underhand. He was like so accurate, yeah. and I think I saw someone from Houston do it. Right? Yeah, I saw that in the preseason. Yeah, so he he tried it, but I guess is is it's not sexy. You know, everyone just want to dunk and cross people over now. They don't want have the fundamentals of the game and doing it the right way. Jeremy Lin now pounds it ahead. Layup goes in. So at what point in high school did you start thinking that you were good enough to play ball in college? To me, Jeremy Lin's the most valuable player on this Palo Alto team. He's their quarterback at point guard. I thought I was good for my team, like my sophomore year. I thought I was the man, but I never, even though I thought I was the best player on my team, I never thought about playing in college just because growing up Asian American, like no one talks about playing sports and no one, definitely no one talks about playing sports in college. So it was such a foreign concept. I didn't really even know how it worked. And my high school coach, after my sophomore year, was like, hey, you can play in college. And I was like, oh, no, I appreciate it, but, you know, I don't, I don't think that's for me. <laughs> so I didn't really know about scholarships. I didn't know anything. You know, my parents knew nothing about it. We were more thinking the Asian path of, you know, getting good grades and all that. After my junior year is when I started to think, man, you know, or like midway through my junior year, we ended up going like 31-2 and two that year, and I had gotten a lot of awards, and I was out playing a lot of the players in the area, and I was like, man, if they can go, then I can go. You know, that's yeah. kind of how I figured out, like, man, I got a shot. Is I saw these, getting I heard about time. these dudes. <laughs> like, yeah, they were getting recruited, and I was like, oh, no, man, we just him. beat you. And, yeah, exactly. So I was like, maybe, you know, I think I, I should be able to play. And so uh, by the time my senior year came around, I was already into the whole recruiting thing, and I was like, man, I, I definitely feel like I'm a, a college player now. What college sent you your first letter? And tell me the emotions of that day. I don't remember my first letter, but I remember my first phone call was from Brown University. Mm -hmm. And I was just like nervous because my mom was like, hey, the Brown coach is going to call you. And I was like, all right, well, what do I say? Or like, <laughs> how does it work? Like, I didn't know because most players, the coaches would come after them. But for me, I had to create a highlight tape and then I had to do all these things. And I sent everything out to the schools. So I was pursuing all the schools, asking them, please take a look at me, please take a look at me. And so the Brown coach was like, hey, I'm kind of interested. And he called me. Um, and I was excited. I was just so excited. And at that time, it's like anything they say, you know, they start off and they might be like, man, you're a good player. And like they say that to everybody. But I was like, man, he thinks I'm a good player. You know, like I was just like, oh, my God, he cares so much. He must think I'm a, like really good. He He called me to tell me I'm a good player. But now that I'm a little older, I realize, you know, they call yeah. a bunch of players exactly. and tell them they're Say all the good players. Thing. Yeah. Everybody um, got the same letters. They just put your name on exactly, the top. Exactly. Exactly. You basically took the, the game tapes of, of your high school games and then just edited. Yeah, we had to pay somebody to cut up my film into a highlight thing. Give it off to Lynn for Lynn to run the offense. And then now Lynn trying to drive. Lynn dishes out. There's Walder over and two. And we made this package, so I had to print out my resume. 
had to write a letter to each coach and then we took it and mailed it to like 20 different schools 10 to 12 d1 schools and like eight d3 schools and then we were just trying to wait to hear back to see what happened that's what you did randy right it was a little different but it was a little different but does Ivy, Ivy League give scholarships? No, Ivy Leagues don't give scholarships. So that was the hard part was I wanted a full ride to school so that I could help my parents out. Yeah. And on top of that, like I wanted to play in the Pac-10 like really, really badly because I grew up there. I want to play at Stanford. So Stanford, Cal, and UCLA didn't really um, want me. Actually, a funny story is on my recruiting it wasn't really a recruiting trip it was just I went to go watch a Cal game and then I said hi to the coach after but the coach called me Ron because he mistakenly called me Ron Jeremy oh man and I, I was just like all right well looks like Cal's not gonna be the school for me um did you know who Ron Jeremy was at that no time? I didn't <laughs> who's Ron Jeremy um yeah you just google him <laughs> you, oh you, you really don't know oh uh, just so now I know you can't see this but there's a Google moment of Ron Jeremy going on here. Luckily, Randy's kids don't have access to his phone. <laughs> yeah, it's a little inappropriate. Oh, I know who that is. <laughs> I know. <So. laughs> I know who that is. That's the um, porn star with yeah. the all uh, here. Oh, man. So, so I didn't know. That's crazy. So, so, and my high school coach was with me. His name's Deep. I was like, Deep, Ron, Ron Jeremy, why do you call me that? Who is that? And, and Deep was like, oh, my goodness. <laughs> My coach, he was like, man, you didn't want to know. I was like, what? And he told me, and I was like, man, let's oh, go. Man, I was up. like, let's go right now. I'm not coming here. And that was that was the last time. Like, so that, that, that coach probably was watching porn on his laptop before he met you. I don't even know. But before I finished typing his name, I was like, oh, that's the porn star. Yeah. That was a no-go for me, man. I mean, I was just trying to play basketball anywhere, you know? And uh, it ended up being Brown and Harvard. And then Brown kind of rescinded the offer because the head coach ended up getting coaching job at another school so basically it was Harvard they were really the only D1 school that wanted me to play there um, but there was no scholarship if you look at your senior year James Harden was playing in California right Chase Budinger Lopez brothers you don't look at those guys then who are getting scholarships and now see where you are and kind of remember that Jalen you have to no um, I know what type of person you are sir. but I know you sometimes you look back and you're like yeah, like look at look look at them now. Look where I'm at. So I'll definitely say the guys who I, you know, obviously like Lopez twins, Ryan Anderson, these guys, because they they've had such good careers. I don't really think that, and they're not the same position. It's more the people who took my spot, or like the people that like the dude who took my uh, Stanford scholarship, like who they gave the point guard spot to, or like the coach that might have said I wasn't good enough, or the dude who got drafted instead of me, like those, or the guys that I was like fighting with in training camp and trying to get a spot on the team, like my rookie year. And don't get me wrong, Steph Curry is not one of them. <laughs> <laughs> there are other guys. To me, that is, I'm not gonna lie, like I do think about that, and I'm like. You made a mistake because you didn't play me when you had the chance to or whatever. So, so I would definitely say that's does true. Does that drive you like when you're working out? Do you ever have a, a moment when you're working out? You're like, man, I'm so tired. I've been doing this for the past five weeks. And there's something in your mind just click where you go back to that setting and you just turn into a beast again working out. <laughs> I know what you're saying. Me and my older brother, we call it like mind hacks. Like we hack our own mind and we motivate ourselves. Um, when I first got to Harvard, for the first two years that I was there, on my desktop of my computer, only thing you could see was just a blow-up picture of the Stanford head coach's face. And it wasn't like his, it was just his face. Is that Montgomery? 
No, 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 no. It was right. Trent Johnson. Uh, he he went to LSU after, and no disrespect towards him or whatever, and he's a, a good coach and whatever. But that's who I was, and that's how fired up I was. And so every time I logged in my computer to do work, the only thing I could see was his face was like this big on the computer, man. <laughs> and it would motivate me. Now, as I'm older, I don't really get caught up in that. I'm sure you feel the same way now. Like you don't get caught up as much in that. You find a way to be motivated more for other things, like whether it's your family or, or the platform or what you want to do versus like, I don't know if it's a little petty or not to get caught up in some of this other stuff, but I don't, I try not to get caught up in some of that stuff. Now it's more just, I know what I want to do. I know what I want to accomplish. Like I know what I'm here for. And there's more substance to my motivation. So I know the Lopez twins were there. I know that you were great friends with Landry Fields when you were in New York. Yeah. Do you think things come full circle? Like, all right, I was in New York with this guy. He's my great friend. Free agent at the same time, he get paid. I was supposed to stay with the Knicks. I go somewhere else to get paid. Now people go back to putting labels on me. I go to Charlotte. I kill. Come here in Brooklyn, starting point guard with Brooke Lopez. Yeah. Do you feel as though things come full circle? Dude, it's it's weird. Like, I mean, even you coming back here in some yeah. way, you know, like it's when you're around long enough, like just crazy stuff happens. And I never thought I would come back to New York when I left, to be honest. Like I always wanted to, but every year, like something would happen. I'd be like, oh, it's not, it's, it's never going to happen. It's never going to happen. Um, you know, even when the Knicks was kind of out of the question and then, and then the Nets went to go get Darren Williams, signed him to a long year, long deal, you know? And so I'm looking at it like, man, that's, it's, I'll never, I'll never go back to New York. And the next thing you know, I'm here. Now I'm like with, you know, one of the Lopez twins, and then like when I during the summer when I go home, I I go back to Stanford. That's where I work out in the summer. So it, it is weird, man. That's that's just that's life, I guess. Right. If we had asked you back then, two thousand six around then, said, okay, you have a choice. You can play with Brooke Lopez at Stanford, <laughs> but you can't play with him one day in the NBA, or you can play with the NBA. I think you might have had an easy choice there. Yeah, exactly. I'm in the NBA all day, man. <laughs> So was your, were both your parents involved in the recruiting process? And you mentioned staying in the Pac-10 at that time, but then you go east. So talk about your parents' role in everything that you were <laughs> looking into from a college standpoint. So I started with my dad, who just loves the game. So he wanted me to keep playing for sure. He never really put too much pressure on me. And I think it would have been nice for me to play at Stanford because he could come and watch. And he could watch every game because we literally live like seven minutes from Stanford. Um, and so I think that would have been nice. Um, and he supported me. He was like, dude, you want to play? You should play. Um, you should go for it. And then my mom really supported me too. But my mom, if she could have chose where I went, she would have chose MIT because the MIT coach really, really wanted me to play there. And that's D3. And I kept fighting against my mom. I was like, man, first off, it's MIT. Everyone there is like hella smart. And I'm probably not going <laughs> to get along with anybody. I would never have made it to MIT or Harvard if I didn't get recruited. So even though I was like solid academically, I just wasn't like, I wasn't, I got rejected from Stanford. Basically, I ended up having to go to Harvard. When I say I had to go to Harvard, it's because I literally, really, really did not want to go to Harvard. Like it was my last choice like it was my second last choice behind MIT if you'd went to MIT I would have never played cards with you on a plane <laughs> exactly <laughs> I would have never don't played. play blackjack yeah. or anything blackjack you, right? or nothing. <laughs> I would have never played you'd have counted all the cards yeah and it's only one deck so exactly it's so it's easy <laughs> yeah so both your moms and dad they both work both had great jobs graduated from college got their degrees yeah was there any like situations where you guys struggle for money? Because I heard you mention earlier you wanted to get a scholarship to help your parents out. 
So you didn't get a scholarship, and you went from one coast to the other coast, and you had to pay tuition. Yeah. It's it's interesting. Like, my parents made solid income, um, but they spent a lot of it trying to raise us because growing up, me, both my brothers, we did all the instruments. We did all the extracurriculars. We played on four basketball teams every year, two soccer teams, like tennis, everything, swimming. And so they spent a lot of money just raising us. And then eventually, you know, we went through spurts where my parents would make good money and then they wouldn't. I remember there were times like in high school, I'd only get $5 a day for lunch. And so like on game days, we would have a shoot around. And so we'd get sandwiches, which were $8. So the day before I would only get like a, you could get a loaf of bread and a, and a thing of ranch sauce for $1.25. So I'd always get that the day before the game so that I could have a sandwich the day of the game. And so, like, I really learned, like, be thankful and take advantage of certain things. And even when I got to college, like, I struggled a lot. Like, my parents struggled a lot financially, couldn't get me through. My grandmother had to pay my tuition for one of my years. And then my senior year, my mom was like, hey, I don't know if, uh, I don't know if I'm going to be able to get you through this year. And so I never bought textbooks in college. Like, I never bought any textbooks because, um, like, I just wanted to make it Super easy. Super expensive, too. Yeah. And, uh, like, the one story or the one thing that I really respect my mom is, when I graduated, um, I was preparing for the draft, and my mom had just gotten laid off, so we were really struggling. And on top of that, we had all these loans from Harvard. And so I was eating, but I wasn't eating. Like She knew that I was trying to save money for the family. And then my mom was like, she ended up taking money out of her 401k, and she was like, if you're really serious about this basketball thing, I need you to eat until you're full. Like You can't be eating half meals. Like You need new, good nutrition. And, uh, dude, God is perfect timing because... You know, I ended up signing in the NBA, and like a week before I signed, my dad also got laid off. So both my parents had gotten laid off within one summer, but right as that happened, like I was able to sign in the NBA, and then I ended up was being able to help my there? parents. No, this is my Golden State deal, oh, okay. my rookie deal. Yeah. So that deal was just as big as the Houston deal. Oh man, that big that was everything because my family was in such a tough place cuz my brother finished school but he didn't get a job cuz he was going for, you know, dental stuff. So he had to go to, you know, med school and all that and my little brother was in school. And so there was one point where aside from me, like no one else in my family was really making income and that was just perfect timing by God. This is like 6 years ago, 6 7 years ago, but um it was everything back then. So are all those Harvard loans paid off now? <laughs> yeah, so that's the first thing. Like, I didn't even really save anything for my rookie year. Like, it was all just, like, paid to taxes, to taking care of the loans, now to taking free. care of uh, parents, all that. Like, and then myself, and I had costs, and I had to get, like, an apartment and a car. So, yeah. My Villanova teammate, um, Will Sheridan, I don't know if you know him or not, but he's based in Brooklyn. But he was gay during the time that we were at Villanova. Yeah. And when we were on the road, like when we played St. Joe's, yeah. it was a lot of homophobic slurs. Did you get any racial slurs thrown at you on road games? Because I know at home they're going to treat you great. But while you're on the road, did anyone say anything that just stuck out to you and you just was like, wow. That's like, the one thing I will like say about Like human beings really talk like <laughs> yeah, this? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Dude, like the NBA crowd is a lot better than the college crowd. The college crowd it goes crazy, man. Like some of the stuff they say, like – it's crazy. Because but it seemed yeah. like in the NBA, right? The, it seemed like some a fan next to him like, hey, that's not right. Yeah, exactly. But in college, it's all kids. It's all are, students yeah, and they're all drunk. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. they were saying all types of stuff. I mean, from, you know. We need like, a story, Jay. We like need I, a story. I, I, I got you. <laughs> like I was at, uh, we were playing at Georgetown 
where they're against Georgetown, and there was one dude courtside, and the whole game he was just kept looking over at me, and he was like, "Chicken fried rice, beef oh, lo mein, like beef and broccoli, like the whole game," and then like we would go to other places, like I was at Yale, and they're like, "Hey." Can you even can you even see the scoreboard with those eyes? Like they'd be saying that stuff, or like in Vermont, I remember at one point the coach was like, because I had my hands up while while the Vermont player was shooting free throws, the, their coach was like, "Hey ref, you can't let that Oriental do that." Oh, and I was man. like, "What's going on here?" And then <laughs> I've been called like I've been called a chink by players in front of the refs. The refs heard it because they were yelling. They're like, "Yeah, get that out, chink!" And the ref heard it, looked at both of us and didn't do anything but that's just like someone saying hey nigger get the ball out to yeah me. yeah it's crazy my teammate was like started yelling at the ref I was like you just heard that it was impossible for you not to hear that like how could you not do something and the ref just pretending like he didn't nothing happened yeah. and i was just like that's when i was like yo this this is a beast and so when i got to the nba i thought i was like man this is gonna be this is gonna be way worse but <laughs> it's like way better like everybody's way more under control I think it's, you know, what's really scary about it is that we're talking about kids that are going to college. These are the educated future of this country, wherever they go, you know, and for kids to think that way and express it and then not have people next to them say, you know, shut the fuck up. Like, who are you? <laughs> um, you know, but when you're going through that, you're in college, you know, any college student, whether you go 100 miles away or across country, you're dealing with homesickness, you're, you're dealing with new things. When those things happen... Do you tell your family? Do you rely on them? Or who are you leaning on when maybe you leave the court and you kind of think about it for a second? The worst was in Cornell when I was getting called a chink. That's when that's when it happened. And uh, I don't know. Like, at that that game, I ended up playing terrible. I ended up, like, getting, like, a, a couple charges and just doing real out-of-character stuff. My teammate went and told my coaches, like, they were calling Jeremy a chink the whole first half. And I didn't say anything because... You know, when that stuff happens, I kind of just, I go, like, I, I bottle up where I go into, like, you know, turtle mode, and I don't say anything, and I just internalize everything. But my coach knew, and I didn't know he knew, so he pulled me to the side, and he was like, and he talked to you real quick. This is Kenny Blakeney, my assistant coach, and he was a McDonald's All-American, and he played with Grant Hill at Duke and all that, and he just started telling me the story about when he was playing at Duke, he would go on the road, and he'd be eating like lunch or whatever on, on on the curbside and people would drive by and like, you know, yell M-bombs and like throw food or like throw drinks at him and stuff like that. And so when he shared that story with me, I was like, hey, this isn't even like, this isn't even bad what I'm going through. And he, that's when he, that was like a turning point for me in terms of dealing with racism because he taught me like, when you go through that, you got to internalize it and do it so that you motivate yourself to play better. Whatever you do, you can't play out of character. Like you can't get your charges and turnovers and foul out of the game. Like you got to find a way to turn that negative energy into something positive for yourself that motivates you. And so that was the last time that I ever really allowed racism to affect me that much. To this day in the NBA, there's still sometimes there's still fans who will say smaller stuff, and it's not a big deal. But that motivates me now in a different way. We're both in the NBA now. At what point in college did you realize the NBA was a possibility for you? I would say midway through my senior year, like very, very late. We just never talked about it. No one around me, none of my friends. I, was not, I wasn't friends with any NBA players. And culturally, like growing up Asian, you just like no one talks about that. And so I never thought it was a possibility. And uh, midway through my senior year, I had a couple good games. 
uh, I think it was mainly the UConn game. After the UConn game, Coach Hamaker was like, hey, I just want to let you know, like, you're on the map now. NBA scouts have been calling me coming to our college games. So, you no, know, just be ready for that. And that's when I was like, all right, well, scouts are coming. I might have a legit shot. So how many teams did you work out for um, leading up into the, the NBA draft? I worked out for 11. I think I worked out for eight. Did you think any team was like, hey, I worked out for this team twice. They might draft me. Because that's what happened with Boston. Oh, yeah? They called me in two days before. My agent was telling me if a team ever calls you back close to the draft, they're thinking about drafting you. Yeah. I know I didn't have any double workouts, but I had three workouts that I thought were so good that I was like, they have to draft me. There is nothing more I could have done. Because, you know, the draft workouts, three on three, pick and roll, you got a lot of space. That's my bread and butter. So the whole draft process was tailor-made for me. So I was doing really well in these workouts against some of these top guys, and I was like, there's no way they can think that that dude's better than me. After my New York workout, D'Antoni pulled me into his office. He's like, hey, like, I just want to let you know I'm blown away at your workout. We have the 39th and 40th pick in the draft. You know, we'll see what happens, but I just needed to let you know, like, that was extremely impressive. And I was like, thanks, man. And uh, <laughs> I was like, thanks, draft me. You know, obviously there's a lot, you know, hoops and that he had to jump through yeah, besides yeah. just the head coach saying, we're going to draft him. So It's funny, is that your reaction to Mike D'Antoni was the same reaction you gave to the Brown coach when he called you? <laughs> yeah, dude, it was because cause I was like flattered. I walked into these practice facilities and I was like, I would put on like, it was their practice gear, yeah. man. It was their Tell practice when gear. When you first put that on, though, when you first like, put it on, and it says like Los Angeles Lakers or New York Knicks or whatever, I'm like, "Ooh, this is this." Is, you know, I'm trying to take pictures yeah, and everything. Like, like, oh, my dream about to come true. Yeah, I'm like so hyped. And so when he said something positive to me, you know, even if someone just walked by, smiled, and said hi, I would like that would make my afternoon. I'd be like, the general manager smiled at me and, and nodded his head, and I'll call my agent, and be like, "What do you think that means?" He's like, "Nothing." <laughs> yeah, I mean, that exactly. The biggest thing about me was no one had ever seen a player like me in terms of just my natural appearance. And so coming out of college, everybody who criticized me was like, he's too weak and he's not fast enough. He's not athletic enough. And that's all they ever said. And like, if you look at the combine stuff, me and John Wall were tied for first in the fastest sprint. So my speed and the stats were there. But every time they would write about me, they would say, He's not going to be fast enough. He's not going to be strong enough. He's not athletic enough. And then when I finally started to play and they would watch me, they'd be like, oh, man, he's deceptively athletic. He's deceptively quick. So I was fighting that narrative the whole time. It's funny, too. When I first got in the league, I couldn't shoot at all. I hit one three-pointer my first, my whole rookie year, one. But everybody was chasing me off the line because they just assumed he's got to be a shooter. Like, he can't be like a driver. And then it wasn't until, like, the scouting report started to go out on me that I was like, no, no, like I'm pretty fast and I'm pretty athletic. Um, it's, like it's just Hayward. that you guys made it deceptive. Like yeah. yeah, or yeah. even like Goran Dragic. Yeah, they think like, that he's a shoot. They think these guys these guys are slashes. They get to the basket and finish over people. Yeah, man. Goran will come and dunk on your head if you're not watching out. <laughs> exactly. Like These dudes are real athletic, but it's just people aren't expecting it. So that was more the narrative that I was fighting early on in my career. When others try to offer your story, how do you get the pin back? You know history will speak of your strokes of genius, but their perceptions won't allow you to make an impact. Knowing you could be the piece to keeping the team intact, in fact, you're what's missing. The glue that keeps the squad a position to win. You can't have Lynn's sanity if you never put Lynn in. So you don't get drafted. So is there any point that you're looking and you're like, man, my NBA dreams 
are in doubt now. Oh yeah. Like I don't trust the system. Yeah, I went. <laughs> I went. Uh, I had been eating healthy during the whole process, and when I when the draft ended up happening and I didn't get drafted, I took me and my family to Wingstop. We ordered a hundred wings. Wow. I hadn't eaten fried food in so long. I destroyed like forty wings and French fries and everything because I was just so angry. I was like, man, how did I not get drafted? I was hearing names, dudes. I didn't even. I didn't even know who they were. I was like, how did I not get drafted? I killed in these workouts. I just like binge ate and I was like in this like pity mode for like three days. And then my agent called me and was like, look, man, you got to get over it. Like we got summer league. He's like every year in summer league, roughly four to five guys get signed out of summer league to a significant partial guarantee or full guarantee. So did you sign with Golden State right away? Or no, I had to you, go. I was with Dallas in oh, the summer with league. Dallas. So I went to Dallas in the summer league. You know, summer league, they're trying to develop their draft picks. So they had just drafted Dominic Jones, who's a shooting guard, and they had Roddy Boubois the year before, who was their point guard. Yeah. So I went there knowing that they were just going to play those two players the whole time. And so I told my agent, I said, man, don't let me go to Dallas. Get me somewhere else. And he called all 30 teams in the NBA and none of them would give me a roster spot on their summer league team, man. This is after my workouts. This is after I was like, I thought I should have gotten drafted. I was killing in some of these workouts. And I couldn't even get a spot on the summer league team. I was like, dude, I don't know what to do. So I went to Dallas, and Roddy Bubba ended up getting hurt against the game against John Wall, who had just gotten drafted number one. So I went head-to-head head head with John Wall and had and had a good game against him. You had a better than a good game. <laughs> What's a good game? It wasn't actually that crazy. It was. I only had like 13 points, but they were all like in a row. And then that's when they're like, okay, he might be all right. So Golden State gave me an offer, a partial guarantee. And I was like, yep, I'm going back home. I'm playing for the Warriors. Yeah. That's my hometown team. So. Jeremy Lin, Palo Alto High School's old. I'm going to tell you a story. Um, I remember I was in with the Clippers. And it was doing preseason. This is my fifth year. So this is your what now? This is my seventh year yeah, right now. Yeah, this is my 11th. So I was with the Clippers. I remember we went up there, and you know how preseason is, you know, play different lineups, and then they subbed you in. Everybody <laughs> started going crazy. But I think you guys were up, and then you were coming down, and I think you looked back at the coach like, should I go or should I just dribble it out and take the shot clock violation? And you look back. And it was basically like I was saying to myself, like, if this dude bring it, I'm going to foul him so hard. <laughs> I was like, he bring the ball to the basket, I'm going to foul him so hard. Like, they're already winning. There's no need. But everybody was like, the crowd was screaming. Like, yeah. basically saying, like, they wanted to see you score. Yeah. But you didn't do anything. So. Yeah. You're in Golden State now. Yeah. Is Steph Curry Steph yet? Glimpses. Glimpses. In, glimpses and injured. But when he was right, you could tell he was going to be special. I mean, I had to go up against Steph every day in practice, and so I knew how good he was because basically all he did was keep working and then get healthy. He averaged like 16 a game or something my rookie year, man. Averaged 16 a game. Do you know how hard that is to do in the NBA? But even then, they were kind of knocking him for all these different things. And that's where I think a lot of times we get so caught up in the today and the now where I wish that we would take more time to really evaluate what is like the mental component of this athlete? Like how mentally tough is he? How much does he want it? How much has he consistently overcome obstacles? All these things because in due time, if they have the right mindset and if they do things the right way and they stay injury free, they will exceed expectations. They'll be great players. I mean, we hear about all the time, Randy, like talented players who aren't there mentally and they fizzle out. And I just feel like we count certain players out too fast who, you know, have a chip on their shoulder or have that burning desire to be great. Jeremy Lin gets a very appreciative 
Round of applause. They love him, and there's a lot to love about him. When you feel that you constantly have to prove people wrong, a lot of times that stress takes its toll. It's going to be like a lot of rookies. The adjustment from the Ivy League to the NBA is significant. I even read a story where you spoke about feeling pressure in high school. How did it affect you, and how did you overcome it? I would wake up and, well, one, I could barely fall asleep. And if I did, I'd wake up with these, like, nightmares, full sweat, just, like, thinking that I just failed a test. And, like, the pressure, I was just letting the pressure get to me so much because I felt like it was everything. I felt like that would, like, define who I was. And, again, that just shows you how far off being a professional basketball player or even a college basketball player really was from, like, my mindset. I went through something even way worse. When I was a rookie, I would have severe anxiety before games. Like, I couldn't eat the day before or sleep the night before. I couldn't really sleep well through my pregame nap. I was just so nervous. And I think going through that and then learning what does it mean to appreciate the experience of the game and not take it for granted and not be so focused on where you want to end up, but just be more focused on the today and the now. I think that's what really helped me. You know, that's what helped me get to the point now where I'm a lot more free on the court. You see me play now, like I'm smiling, I'm having fun, I'm joking with guys, I still get after it. And my hunger is still the same. I still work the same, but I don't have that inner turmoil that I used to have. And now I'm able to really appreciate the whole experience. So 2011, Kenny Atkinson is player development for the New York Knicks. Now Kenny Atkinson is the head coach of the Brooklyn Nets. What was your relationship like with him when you signed in December of 2011 with the New York Knicks? Back then, he was one of the lower assistant coaches, and he was more skill development than anything. So all the guys who didn't play at that time was like me, Steve Novak, Ronaldo Balkman, Jerome Jordan. We would work out with him every day, and eventually I was like, yo, he loves the game. After the workouts, he's covered in sweat because he's working out just as hard as we are. Everything he does is, is so much more fun and is so much more thorough. I just gravitated towards him because I was like, hey, man, just help me get better. Help me become as good as I can be. So we would just start watching film. Like, he would get there. You know, he gets there now, like, at 5, 6 in the morning. Back then, it was the same thing. And I'd be the first player there. And so he would always pull me to the side and be like, we're watching film, we're watching film. Like, I wouldn't even play the night before. And he's like, we're watching film. From there, we just developed this relationship, and then we just really trusted each other. And that's basically why I signed here. I got this crazy story, man. I'm kind of embarrassed to tell it. Getting ready to play you guys. We're leaving out the Trump Tower. Wait, wait, wait. Who's tapping the, the unnamed tower? Let's, <laughs> let's right. get this straight. We know this is <laughs> part of the reason we're doing this. He who no, must no not promotion. be named. I was at this place at, in Soho. <laughs> we was at the Soho Trump. The Ron Jeremy Tower. <laughs> <laughs> and um, beat you guys. I don't know if you were playing or not, but as soon as we go out, and it's like TMZ is there. It's like so many cameras. He's like, hey, Randy. Jeremy Lin, he's tearing it up out there on the court. What do you think about, like, when he's in his shower with all those black guys? What do you think what? about it? And I was like, what? I think I said something like, I know he's into God, man. He's a blessed dude. Like that. <laughs> and then I thought about it. You know how he like, hey, yo, a yeah, pause right yeah, now. Yeah. I was like, oh, I shouldn't have said that. I hope you don't put that out. But they put it out. But when he said it, I look back like, what, is you, what are you talking about? Man, <laughs> I didn't even, I never heard that before. Bro, he said, that. I was like halfway on the bus. And I turned around like, what? <laughs> like, look at like, this dude is crazy for even asking that question. Man. But at that time, it was Carmelo on the team, Amari, right? Yeah. Tyson, yeah. all these different superstars, defensive player of the year, all stars. And this guy named Jeremy Lin just getting all of this attention. 
Insanity. Hands on their feet. How did it come about? How did the insanity, Lynn's sanity, how did all of that stuff come about? I always tell a story, man. Like, it was a lockout season, so we only had one back-to-back-to-back. And it was that last game of that back-to-back-to-back that I had that breakout game. And honestly, they were probably going to cut me after the game or close to it. And they kind of put me in there because guys were so tired and other guys weren't playing as well. And part of it is because everyone was so tired. And I remember at, back then, my career high was 12 points. So at halftime, I had like six points and like four assists. And I was like, man, I'm balling. Like, I got six points, bro. I got six. That's a lot. That's so half you, of my career high in one so half. Are you, are you the type of guy to keep your stats in your head while you're playing? I can't keep all of them. But like <laughs> back then, it just was the like. First, just the first four assists and then the first six points. I only know these because like I've gone back in the documentary, so I've seen it. But I just remember, in, I was like, man, I'm doing really well. But to me, really well back then was if I just scored twice. And so I had like six at half, and I was like, this is awesome, man. I'm doing real well. And then after that, it just things took off. Did you do anything differently as far as how you played once you're told, I might get cut in a couple days? Yes, because prior to that, I was struggling a lot with anxiety. So even when I get on the floor, I would play so nervous. I remember I would shoot threes, and I would just airball. Like, I would airball consistently my rookie year because I was— I just put all this pressure on myself, and I just wasn't myself on the court. But then when my agent was like, man, this is this might be about it for you. you got to play your game. And I had already gotten cut twice, so I was like, this might be the end of my career, man. So I really went into that game, and I was like, I'm going to just be aggressive and do me. I can't keep doing this anxiety-type basketball where I, I'm not myself, and I'm scared to shoot, and I'm scared to drive, and I'm scared to do anything. I was like, I can't do that anymore. So I really got to a point where I was like, Man, I'm going for it. People was hating. I think it was Derek Fisher. He played the Lakers. I think it was like ABC. <laughs> well, you did that to Derek Fisher. I was looking like, man, they blowing him up, man. Anybody could do that against Derek Fisher, man. He old, man. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you had him on skates, bro. Yeah. He was giving him everything he wanted. <laughs> no. I, mean, I, was, I was here in New York. I think part of it, what you've described of that sort of excitement, you were like oozing that on the court. Looking back, how did you feel in it? And then since then, did you have a chance to sort of understand... This is why people kind of reacted a certain way? Um, I just think it was just something that they had never seen before. And I always say, like, I'm a really hard person to put in a box, per se, or to categorize because I'm very different in a lot of different ways. So going back to specifically that situation or New York, like, why was it so crazy? Well, it was already crazy because we were struggling as a team, and now we're starting to win games, and we're back in the playoff push. Not only that, I was going to get cut. I was the 15th man, and then now overnight he made me the starting point guard. And then I had set the record for the most points ever scored by any player in their first five starts, but I didn't look like anybody they had ever seen. Chance to make history as the first Asian-American NBA player in the modern era. All anybody ever knew about Asian players was seven-foot centers from China, so they had never seen a guard. And then I was Asian-American, then I was from Harvard, and then there's this whole underdog story. And so there were so many different elements, and so people didn't really know really like they had never seen anything like this before and I think that's what was so gravitating about it was the different elements of the story and I think it scared me and my biggest regret is I never really soaked it in or appreciated it I was so scared and then I was so focused on all right well they think this so I got to be that and then I got to next year I got to play even better and then I got to play even better and it was just on to the next goal and I never really was able to slow down and appreciate it. On JJ's podcast you said it went from being a burden to becoming a badge of honor. What did you mean by that? Um, I just think like back then it was like every question would be like, Jeremy, what's it like to be Asian in the NBA? 
It's like everything was about being Asian in the NBA. What's it like to be Asian? What's it like to be Asian? And at a point, I was like, man, just stop talking about me being Asian, man. And like everyone would just refer to me like, Linsanity, Linsanity. And I'm like, dude, just stop calling me that name, man. And so it became a huge burden because I felt like I had to be this phenomenon for everybody else. And now when I said badge of honor, it's like, no, nah, this is cool, man. I rep for all the Asians. I rep for all the Harvard dudes. I rep for the Cali guys. I rep for the underdogs. Like I take pride in it. I'm not, it's not a burden to me anymore. I'm not scared anymore. Like I appreciate it and I want to like help. And I want to challenge like the world, you know, stereotypes and everything. Like there's so many things I want to do with my platform now. But back then I didn't understand it. And it came so fast that I didn't really know what was going on. When you look at the statistics of players that are trying to get into the NBA and then players are drafted, the numbers are amazing. So basically, when we looked at you, you were outside shot. There was no chance that you could have made it to where you're at now. Who do you give that credit to? I mean, I always had to start with like God, but not in a cliche way, because I remember after New York happened, I went home and I wrote down on a like a, on a sheet of paper, I wrote down all the things that had to happen for me to make it to this point. Without any one of those had happened, I would never have made it to, you know, insanity. And these were all things outside of my control. And I went back all the way to when I was born. Like I talked about how I'm nine inches taller than both my parents and I'm 60 pounds heavier than the next closest person in my family. Like I'm a freak, you know, like I thought I was adopted for a little bit because I'm just so much bigger <laughs> and taller and like, and I eat two times more than anybody else. Yo, like, you I'm can a freak. eat, bro. Yeah. Bro, we was like, we was coming here. I was like, hey, my wife is, um, she's going to stereotype she's gonna have sushi <laughs> <laughs> no but we had already talked about because i said my favorite food is sushi so randy yeah. got me lots of ball soup by I, now. I, <laughs> okay i don't know about no, that but, but i requested the uh i, I wanted the sushi he yeah knew so like we, sushi. we knew we went out to eat in miami we went to a place where we ate sushi so i already yeah. knew yeah. but then chris was like my wife was like yo you sure we should get him sushi <laughs> And I was like, Chris, he's not like he's cool. Don't worry, yeah. like he, he like he wants this. Like, and then I told Jeremy, I said, Hey, man, we gotta get you sushi. So I just don't want you to look at me. Crazy. Nah, it but was this dude the- on a plane, like he eats, man. And I'd be like, This dude don't gain no weight. Yeah, like just burn. Then you get on the court, just run forever. It's crazy, man. Yeah. So even stuff like that. And then I went down the line, and like, oh, I met this person, or and he did this for me, or like, you know, even how I got how I got to the Knicks. Basically, the Rockets tried to keep me. But they couldn't make a trade for one of the other point guards, so they cut me a day later. And you know how the waiver wire works. It's only 48 hours. Yeah. And so Iman Shumper got hurt on Christmas Day, and that's why they picked me up. But if the Rockets had cut me at the same time that they had cut everybody else, then I would have been off the waiver wire. So then I wouldn't have been able to get picked up by the Knicks. So many of these situations. So I wrote down all these situations. I came with like 13 of them, and I was like, Man, God's been really good to me. Like, I know, like, yeah, you could work hard, you could be talented. You still need a lot of stuff outside of your control. And so I give credit to him. And then I talk about my family and my, my coaches, but specifically my family. Like, my parents grew up Asian immigrants with nothing. They came here with nothing. They used to fish to eat. Like, that's how they would eat. They would fish and then they would freeze fish for like weeks and they ate the same thing fish every single day because they had no money and then when they finally got money they spent it all on their kids to the point that they like had nothing left and they and then they told me to play basketball and then all my my, like my mom's friends were like dude you're wasting money and you, you shouldn't play basketball like this isn't the right way and she would get criticized and criticized and criticized but she was she just held strong and she's like no my kids love basketball i want them to be happy do it she took out money out of her 401k to like let me pursue my dream, you know? Like, my parents 
really did a great job. And then my brothers, like me and my brothers are super close. So we we talk about everything even now, like we're all in different different places in the world, but we do Bible study together and we text all the time. And when I was really going through it, I would always call my older brother. Like if I was in tears or whatever, like I would call my older brother and talk to him. Didn't you stay with your older brother um, in New York? Yeah, in New York. I was on his couch for six weeks. Everyone talks about Landry's couch. But the only reason why I slept on Landry's couch that one night was because I had been sleeping on my brother's couch for six weeks, but he had friends coming in town, so I couldn't sleep on the couch anymore because they were going to sleep on the <laughs> you couch. You got bumped from your brother's couch. You got yeah. bumped for friends, and you're an NBA player. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's but that's like that's how close I am with my brothers. There's so many people, man, that just poured their like lives into me that like gave me a chance to be able to do this. Like you talk about faith, like I'm a Christian. Yeah. And like you said, there's so many breaks that I had to have mm-hmm. to make it. For me, having no moms, no dad, growing up with my grandmother, growing up with aunts, and just moving back and forth. I remember nights where I had to sleep, like, in the wintertime here, where it's super cold, where I had to sleep with, like, two coats on, all my clothes, my shoes, and my face would be, like, frozen because it, we had no heat. There were nights that, like, I went to, to sleep, and I was, like, praying, like, please don't snow because yeah. I want to go to school the next morning so I could eat breakfast at school because we didn't eat the night before. Huh. And it's just like, but every time I just stopped and I just was like, I knew when people say, you need something, just pray. I would pray and be like, please, God, just please give me something like for the sim. And it just will happen. Yep. And then everything just start falling into place. And I thought once I got to college, I was like, I already made it. Like where I'm from, like I made it. Going to Division One, like I made it. And then even making it now, it's, it's been situations where I look at it where I would be like, you know, if I don't do good here, then I, I'm on the verge of being out the lead. And it's just somehow something just happened. Like yeah. My faith is at all time high. Like, I don't know what's going to happen, but I know something is going to happen. Yeah. That's how I think. Yeah. I mean, you know, when I talk about my faith, I always try to go back to the word compassion is because we see people in our lives who do certain things or we see people, you know, you might see someone on the street who is homeless and you're like, man, well, they probably made a bunch of mistakes and bad choices to get them there. But I think to myself, if I didn't grow up with two loving parents who talked to me about faith and had me go to church when I was young, like what would my life look like? Even like something like where people are putting me in stores or whatever, anything that might happen that's like, I'm like, why? Like, I don't understand. It just keeps going back to, you know, one of my favorite verses, Romans 8, 28, and it talks about God taking bad situations and working them for your good and everything, man. Like I... I don't want to. I wanted to go to Stanford, but I ended up at Harvard, and that was the worst thing ever at that time. And it was the best thing that ever happened to me. Like I broke my foot before the championship game, and at that point, that was the worst thing that had ever happened to me. But that's, but that changed my attitude. I used to get kicked out of practice all the time. I used to get kicked out of class in high school all the time. I used to make my high school teachers cry. I was just a terrible, like, I was just a, a rebel, a nightmare. After I broke my ankle, that's when I promised myself I would become the hardest worker. And like from then on, it was like every time I go on, I want to be the hardest worker. That's it. I just want to be the hardest worker. And so all these situations now when problems come, I pray. Like I pray to God and I'm like, God, like give me comfort. Give me peace. I don't want to get stuck on what does it look like today, right now, small picture. My purpose right now is at an all-time high. If everyone's on my side or if everyone's not on my side, like now I know like what I want to do with this platform. Like I want to challenge stereotypes. I want to help people with you know, racial issues, social justice issues, all these things I know, like basketball is the engine. And so whether people love me or hate me, I've been through it all. And now I just got a deeper purpose. Thank you, bro. I know this is um, 45 minutes out your way. (laughs) But um, I hope we treated you well. I hope you enjoyed yourself. But more than anything, man, 
I just wish you nothing but luck throughout the rest of your career because your story is amazing. Just from the stereotypes being doubted, like we say, it definitely was an outside shot. And I just thank you for being on this show with us. Man, no worries. Thanks, guys. This is awesome. They drew a line in the sand. Now here you stand outside that line with goals in mind. Dreams and destinies you will put here to find. Manifest. They say you the worst when you know you're the best. So you invest. Put in that work, even when it hurts. Their can'ts and their doubts turn into our will and our must. You put trust in your faith and your gut. The instincts you naturally feel. Against all lies, you tighten up even the playing field. Brick by brick, you build like a city. There's something in me, in you, that just won't let you stop. You know what's going in, even though they say you are an outside shot.